mess up the Jesuits' haircut, you putrefied owners. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. Thank you for the lovely feedback for last week's podcast, which was... Last week's podcast was a bit of a wild ride. It was about plants having feelings and the CIA engaging in torture on plants and Victorian fern fetishisation. And I really enjoyed making it. Thank you for the lovely feedback. I'm doing something different with my life this week. Um, So the past two years of this pandemic and lockdown, it hasn't been great for my mental health in general. Two years of pretty intense isolation and not seeing a lot of other human beings has left me a little bit socially anxious and a bit reluctant to want to be around other people. And I've got a history of social anxiety, so that's not healthy for me. So I want to challenge this directly. I want to jump into the deep end. So I've started renting an office, right? I've started renting an office. I haven't gone in yet. And my intention is I'm going to have an office that I have to go to nine to five, five days a week. And that's where I go and write and research for this podcast and do all my work. And that's my new plan. And I'm starting that tomorrow. And the reason I'm doing it is I empathy. I need to I need to interact with humans. I want to go to my office, which is a shared building, and open a door for someone or say hello to somebody in the morning. Say hello to a stranger. Ask a person how their day was. Notice another person's emotional state. All these basic human interaction, basic human interaction, which I could not engage in for the past two years. I want to re-engage the social part of my brain. I feel as if the social part of my brain is like a muscle that hasn't gotten any exercise. Do you get me? And that's having an adverse impact on how I feel about myself, how I feel about other people and how I feel about the world. So I don't want to be thinking about it. I'm straight into the fucking deep end, getting an office. It'll also help my creativity. Two podcasts ago, I spoke about the practice of moving something from your head to your heart, which is basically proactively making new neural pathways in my brain through actions, through actions and behaviours. Not necessarily thinking about it, but doing. So I know that by doing that, putting myself into a situation where I must empathically socialise with multiple people, Every day, in about two weeks, my brain's going to repattern and I'm going to feel whole again. Also, I really need to do it for my creativity. I'm writing a new book at the moment. And in order to write a book, you cannot do that in isolation. You just can't. Writing a book means creating multiple characters and these characters need to be, need to feel like real human beings with lives outside of the page. And the best way to do that is when you meet and speak to other people, different people's speech patterns, how they view the world, how they carry themselves, all these things unconsciously then inform characters that I write. It's like a widening my palette. It's like 
going out and buying a lot of new paints rather than painting with the same two colours, if you get me. So that's what I'm going to do. That's what my office is going to be for. Nine to five, writing, doing this podcast. And I'm really, really looking forward to it. Not only looking forward to the social aspect of it, but getting up in the morning and like it's pissing rain. But I say to myself, I have to go into work. So I get up on my bicycle and I cycle through the rain. Which means my morning begins with conflict and a challenge. And the challenge to to tolerate the frustration of having to cycle in the rain and put on the right clothes and do all of this stuff. I know this might sound absolutely bizarre. And in a way it is kind of bizarre. It sounds bizarre that I'm making a big deal out of just trying to have a normal existence where I interact with humans. But like, the past two years were bizarre. Lockdown was bizarre. Like doing a lockdown to keep ourselves and other people safe, that's not bizarre. But the practice of a lockdown, what a lockdown was, that was bizarre. That wasn't natural. So I'm going to be proactive about it. Just going to go straight into the fucking deep end. I'm really looking forward to doing it. And I'm really excited about the opportunity for spontaneity and surprise that I will now have by simply going into an office and working rather than working from home. And if you're happy still working from home, fair play to you. That's what works for you. But for me, that's dangerous. I'm someone with a history of social anxiety. I can't do that isolation shit. I fall back into old toxic patterns that don't work for me. So I do need to actually act upon that and make sure that I'm socialising. Also, I need to enforce a sense of discipline and routine. One of the issues I faced over lockdown is time time becomes kind of meaningless you know the way the days used to blend into each other because you weren't leaving the gaff so what I found myself doing a lot was working really really late into the night like sometimes I'd record this podcast and mightn't be finished it till like 8am because I've gone all night doing it and then I'd be pissed off because then the next day I'm sleeping in in the daytime so by engaging in a routine 9 to 5 approach in in a sterile, solemn environment like an office, those type of restrictions, I know I'll benefit from that. My creativity will benefit from that. So I got myself a little office. Yeah, it's a, t- it's a small little room with a desk. That's all I need. Luckily, um, because of the pandemic, there's a fuckload of office space in Limerick at the moment for renting and it was quite cheap. And I'll still be able to be safe as well. Yes, I'll be interacting with people, but I'll still be maintaining social distance, still be wearing my mask, I'm double vaxxed, I do regular antigen tests. So, so, I'm feeling very comfortable about that too. I actually got the idea for it of the singer, the singer and writer Nick Cave. When Nick Cave was coming off heroin, he got himself an office and just went. He 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 went so far as to wear a suit. He was he was coming off heroin, 
and he was like, fuck it, I need to sort this out, I need routine. So he got himself an office and literally went there every morning wearing a suit like a businessman and went there to write his songs and his lyrics and his books. And I remember reading that years ago and it was always something I wanted to try. So I'm starting tomorrow. That'll be my first day. Hopefully next week I'll have an update to tell you how well it went. And I'm I'm really, I welcome it. I welcome it so much. I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to. Look at all the opportunities for spontaneity that I will now have in my day. I might have an interesting conversation with a stranger or a crow might do a shit on my head. All these, the wonderful chaos of the universe that I tend not to experience when it's just the same shit every day in my studio, in my gaff. So this week's podcast is about science because it's science week and I've been supporting science week now for fucking years, going back 2011. The theme of this this year's science week is creating conversations between the general public, research community, policy makers, democratising science really. That's what the theme of this year's science week is. There's loads of events happening, Science Week events happening, um, online and in real life. If you want to find out what is going on, go to sfi.ie, which is Science Foundation Ireland, and you'll find out some of the lovely things that are happening as part of Science Week. Science Week's for everybody, alright? Don't just think it's something that's directed at kids to try and get them to to go into science subjects. It's, It's for everyone, young and old. I'm fascinated by science. I always have been. I love physics. I love biology. But I was not academically inclined in school. I failed my leave insert. So unfortunately, science as a third level subject or a career option just wasn't available to me. You know, it wasn't available to me. And I get disappointed about that sometimes because the older I get and the more I learn, I realise that science can be incredibly accommodating to people who are creative thinkers. You know, people who think laterally or people who can see patterns where the patterns aren't immediately apparent. And those those are both ways of thinking that are within my comfort zone. So what I did this week is I spoke to two scientists who were associated with Science Week and we spoke about a number of things. One of the themes was the parallels between art and science. One of the scientists I'm going to speak to is Dr. Aaron Golden from NUIG up in Galway. And he was involved in this incredibly fascinating project, right? Where him and his team developed artificial intelligence that helped countries that are really being impacted by climate change. Parts of Africa, for instance. There's communities there that are, they're impacted by how their food is being grown water shortages, all the real negative impacts of climate change, Dr. Aaron Golden and his team developed artificial intelligence that allows these communities to track the impacts of climate change and what it's doing to their communities so that they can proactively interact and work against it so that they're not suffering from drought or that they're working around flooding or that their farming isn't impacted and their food uh, sources aren't impacted. And I love hearing about projects like that because 
you tend not to hear a lot of good news when it comes to climate change. When it comes to how climate change is reported, it it is very catastrophic and it's very alarmist. And I love hearing about what's being done to tackle it and what's being done to confront it. And a project like this does that. Also, I speak to Dr. Ruth Freeman and she is the Director of Science for Society within Science Foundation Ireland. But she's also a most magnificent science communicator. She's somebody who actively democratises science in her actions and in how she speaks about science. She has an ability to make science seem fun and accessible and not in any way exclusive. Something that is for everybody. So if you're interested in science, uh, you're in for a treat. I'll play for you now the chat that I had with Dr. Ruth Freeman and Dr. Aaron Golden. All right, I'm here with Dr. Ruth Freeman and Dr. Aaron Golden. And Ruth, you're the director of the Science uh, for Society Foundation Ireland. And Aaron, you're an astronomer and a lecturer in the School of Mathematics in, in UI Galway. So first off, Ruth, um, tell us about the work that the Science for Society at Science Foundation Ireland is doing and, and how does that relate to Science Week? Sure. Lovely to be here. Um, yes, it's Science Week. It's the 26th Science Week this week, which is amazing. And I suppose at Science Foundation Ireland, we, we do lots of things. But the thing we do most is actually give public money to researchers to do research, mostly in the universities and the institutes of technology. So that's what we spend a lot of our time doing, getting proposals in from researchers, getting international experts to look at them and then giving funding to those projects and hopefully supporting the projects to, to deliver really good new knowledge and exciting innovations. So, so we spend a lot of our time doing that. That's what that to me, Ruth, it sounds so my my uh, sector is the art world, obviously, and it doesn't actually sound a million miles away from the art. world. Yeah, I think there's parallels. Do you think because this is what I'd like to know about. So one thing I always say with with art, when people say to me, why should we fund the arts? Why can't that be private? Why should we fund the arts? And I always say to people, because you need to fund things so that artists have the freedom to fail. Because consistent failure over and over again is how you achieve excellence. And if you don't have the time and capacity to fail, then you have to kind of aim for mediocrity so that you can get a return. And I admire that about science. Science, as I see it, is you're funding someone to try and fail as much as possible. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think you're, you're right. You have to have that appetite for risk. I mean, no one would go into science if they knew where they were going. It's all about curiosity and new knowledge. And yeah, it's very like the arts. In fact, I think there's a lot more in common with the two areas than, than sometimes is presented. And, you know, we need people to take risks if they're going to come up with new ideas and we need to tap into creativity in science. I mean, all of the scientists working around the country are incredibly creative people. Aaron. So you recently were involved in the enabling developing countries to track climate change adaption in their agri-food sectors using artificial intelligence. And when I was going through the, the SFI website and I was looking at these the, the challenges section, the things that have been invested in, your project jumped out immediately. I was just like, what the fuck is this? This sounds amazing. I, I don't know what this is. <laughs> But I know that it's I really want to ask questions about this. So you were using artificial intelligence to help 
developing countries to check cl- climate change like what's that what's that yeah well first of all can i just add one thing that just to follow on to what you were just saying oh, yeah. there and um, you know the the arts and sciences thing uh, i i spent a little while living in in france and in france they see no difference between the two they are basically the same kind of cultural mission um that uh that you know french researchers and french artists do you know they're all seen as the same common good you know yeah as regards our project um it's not your average bear um what what is it aaron what is it what is it basically what what involves is is the following we know climate change is happening nobody knows really how to measure that nobody really knows how to get a sense of well what's happening to families and communities in the developing world? How can we quantify what's actually happening to them? How can we measure, for example, how their crop failures are happening over time? I put it to you another way. If you're in the business of trying to help these people, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes you can be just overwhelmed with uh, the, the, the problems that confront you. And, you know, you have to prioritize and you have to come up with a, a solution, a working solution that you know is going to have an impact. You 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 know we're dealing with something that you can't run control experiments in a box over it's happening right now and it's affecting people's lives right so mm-hmm. the idea that we had was that well listen what we'll do is that we'll we'll sidestep a lot of we'll say the traditional ways of doing business and we'll we'll use earth observation data in other words we'll we'll use this honest broker that are these earth observation satellites that pass overhead every day and take images and what we'll do is we'll analyze. What those is that? Is that like Google Maps? No, well, it's just like it. You know, the weather forecast at the end of the day, where they show you the weather forecast, uh, and this is what Ireland's looking like this afternoon. It's the same kind of technology, except you 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 basically stick telephoto lenses on it, and you 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 change if you like the 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 the, the sunglass, the filters. I like to think about it. This kind of different types of color filters that you use. So you bring up the greens, if you like. You bring up mm-hmm. the chlorophyll signal that you get in the the trees that I can see outside my window wow. at the moment right so you take these pictures in basically green light that correspond to this chlorophyll signature and what i can do i was thinking about this before before we we started this conversation like everybody's kind of knows our arsenal is in the in the phoenix park beautiful yeah. big park in dublin and uh, there's some lovely forests around there big deciduous forests and you can see right now i imagine there must be those beautiful colors because we're we're in the autumn at the moment mm-hmm. from space if you like if you could take a pic- bunch of pictures over the year You'd see the trees, if you like, you'd see that part of the park go from a kind of a brown color to a light green color to a rich green color to the beautiful autumn colors that we see now and back to brown. So that would be a cycle that you'd see over the year of, you know, the sort of the seasons as we would see it here in Ireland. We can use exactly the same kind of technique. And except, instead of looking at a, a, a mini forest, we'll say, in our, uh, near Arsenukteron, we can look at a community, a village in Senegal, we'll say, next to the Senegal River. And mm-hmm. we can actually study and track the, 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 the crop cycles associated with the planting of rice. Because, you know, people in this particular part of the world, they live, they subsist, and their entire communities are based around ensuring that they have a good harvest of food to, to tie them throughout the year. And what we can actually do is we can we can look at this data from space and, for instance, A, we can track over time 
how that, that, that sort of flow, ebb and flow in crop cycles has been changing over time. And that could be a consequence of mm-hmm. the kind of stresses that climate change is actually having on these people and their lives and their community. Um, not only can we do that, but we can also say, well, let's look at an area we'll say that Irish aid have made an investment in, we'll say, um, uh, irrigation works. Yeah, we can actually see we can see what happened before the irrigation works went went in and we can see what happens after the irrigation works. So we can actually measure the increase in productivity directly from space. Here's the thing that that, that, that threads the needle, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, people, other folks have re- have managed to do a lot of work and have been able to show that for want of a better word of putting it, the strength of the green signal can be directly mm-hmm. correlated to bushels bushels of crops so we have a way of not only finding out those areas where things are happening it's also possible for us to put a sort of a sticker price if you like on what the actual impact is going to be and if you're in a business where you want to be able to say we need to invest something and and know it's going to have an impact the kind of thing that we're working on with the sport of sfi is the kind of thing that a lot of people will find incredibly useful and one question aaron what like so in terms of a, a community in, in the likes of Senegal, as you mentioned, what on the ground impact is climate change having to these people's lives? And what, do you know, what, do you know what it's like? It's, 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 it, here's a good analogy that will maybe work for pretty much everyone here. Um, you know, the whole property crisis in this country. Yeah. It's, doesn't, it's not something that happened overnight last weekend. It's a slow kind of, a th- we're like frogs in a pot. Do you know, the temperature is mm-hmm. slowly going up and then suddenly we realise... It's happening to him. It's happening to her. Did you hear about this? And all of a sudden it becomes like everybody realizes it's a crisis. What's happening in, in the developing world is that it's been there's over the last 20, 30 years, there's been slowly but surely there's been incremental change. Slowly but surely you see the crops would start to fail. Slowly you would see that people would society would start to fragment, that people would 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 have to leave and go to the urban environments to get jobs and so on and okay. so forth. It's a slow, gradual thing. Okay, this is now, what happened with the in in Syria around 2011. One of the things that caused the Syrian civil war was communities in the more rural areas were having drought after drought after drought until right. there was huge amounts of rural immigration into the cities in Syria. Yeah. And this is what laid the the grounds for the destabilization that led to the civil war. Well, I think that's a case in point. You've you've actually you've actually touched on like in terms of how does this affect us? This is where, if you like, I couldn't think of a better example about how how everything is interconnected here. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, we of all people in Ireland know the impact of of failed a failed harvest. Do you know? Like, of course. Some, do you know what I mean? And I think yeah. actually in a, in a in a strange way. I think like um, when we were we were testing out this idea with the, like Science Foundation Ireland were really, really good in, in encouraging us to go out and try to meet people who would be interested to talk to us. You know, um, yeah. we went to uh, through uh, some colleagues uh, connections. We went to the Food Agricultural Organization in Rome uh, and we gave an impromptu presentation. We had no idea who would turn up or how many people were there. It turned out the place was crammed because mm-hmm. it, it sort of hit a raw nerve. First of all, the kind of thing that we were proposing to do. And I think the second thing was where we were coming from and how we were articulating it. You know, we were coming yeah. from this very strong kind of agricultural society. It has a very unique kind of history. It's well connected in terms of doing the right thing by the United oh, so Nations. So you contextualized, you contextualized this thing in terms of 
Ireland's history, Ireland's culture, Ireland's relationship yeah. with famines. Yes. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Listen, yeah. I mean, everybody knows about the trucker boxes. I mean, we, you know, like we have a, we're unbelievable. I think Irish people are unbelievably well, well sort of sensitized, if you like, we'll say to what happens elsewhere, you know, that sort mm-hmm. of way. And mm-hmm. I think um, that sort of, that was a very sort of interesting kind of backstory. I think that I think really, I think it made a huge impact in terms of when we were trying to reach out to people and connect to people, you know, that we had some kind, there was something, there was a real deep motivation behind this project. Do you know what I mean? It's hard for me to articulate. I'll tell you what, Aaron, because there's one thing I've been, uh, so often I, I speak, I'm, I'm concerned about climate change and it's something I speak about on my podcast a lot, just, just as a civilian. And I often get asked the question, Sure, we're Ireland. What the fuck can we can do? Should can we do? We're tiny. Who like? What's the point? And what I always remind people is, Ireland has a small carbon footprint, but we have a massive cultural footprint. Right. Mm. And one thing I proposed was, like, if you look at the scale of St Patrick's Day, here's we're a tiny country, and here's this holiday called St Patrick's Day that's celebrated all around the world, like mm-hmm. everywhere. Mm. Why don't we recontextualize the greenness of St. Patrick's Day to become about saving the climate? So now you have this Mm. huge, our cultural footprint is massive and we can take it back to the famine because famine was, that's like, that's what these communities are facing now. Right. And you recontextualize St. Patrick's Day and say it's green now, but it's green in a different way. And we have this this pre-existing cultural infrastructure to communicate things and that's how Ireland becomes important so it doesn't matter anymore that we're a tiny country with a tiny amount of people when people say what about China what about India what about America we have a cultural footprint but I think as well we have to remember that on a per capita basis we actually have high carbon footprints so so you know as well we have to be careful that we don't let that narrative that it's not just us and can you describe that to me well I think if you look at, at the amount that we consume as individuals in this country. And if you look, mm-hmm. if, if you imagine, uh, there's actually a really nice book called Donut Economics. I heard a really good talk about it, which basically says, if you look at all the people on earth and, you know, they're kind of fulfilling their basic requirements like shelter, food, you know, education. And then you think about going beyond that into what you might call luxuries or, you know, things mm-hmm. that just make life more comfortable. I mean, it's quite clear that there's whole sections of the population who are living without those basic necessities on the globe. And then there's mm-hmm. swathes of people kind of in the developed north who are living beyond the planetary boundaries. So, like, we have to have a conversation about how we collectively live within the planetary boundaries in terms of resources. I mean, look, maybe one day we'll be able to go and get resources from meteorites and other planets. Mm -hmm. But for the moment, kind of this is where we are. And, you know, I think two things for people in Ireland, because I think that argument about China and America, what can we do? It's actually a really dangerous route to go down in terms of abdicating Mm -hmm. responsibility. I mean, we not everyone. I mean, there's there's obviously variation in society here, but but in general and on average, we are in the top consumers globally. We are taking Mm -hmm. more than our share, each of us. Um, So we need to think about that. And I think the other thing is, as well as the climate crisis, we have a biodiversity crisis. And if you look at all of the recent reports about how Ireland is doing in terms of protecting our native species, our bees, our waterways, our, our ocean, we are not doing well. 
And in fact, we're doing yeah. a lot worse than many, many other people. So so even if you sort of take the carbon discussion out of it, although you can't because it's all interlinked, it's all about yeah. the way we're living. I, I think everyone could agree we at least have a responsibility to look after our little bit of the globe. And I think if we could be better, all of us collectively, you know, then mm-hmm. wouldn't it be great? I think it's a brilliant idea about using the greening idea of St. Patrick's Day. But we have to be able to live up to it ourselves, I think, if we're going to go out with that message. And one thing just to, on a point you made there, I was doing, I made a documentary uh, about two years ago with the BBC about about modern slavery that we don't see, mm. which is which impacts our lives here in in the in the global north or the developed north, right? And I had a team of journalists who looked at the data, and the data is is that people who live in the glo- in the global north, just to go about our day, we have seventy slaves each. There's wow. se- seventy people, wow. and then I started to think, because this is something that I wonder about. I started to think, right. Let's just say David Attenborough was from Mars, so he's an alien and he's been told from Mars, can you make a documentary about the earth? And I think what he'd come away with, his assessment of human beings, is that you have like this 1% of the population and we're effectively parasites to another 70 people that live in developed countries who have to make all these things that we just take for granted. Yeah, well, I think there's a we, we have to reframe consumption. We have to reframe, e- I mean, economic growth as, as a way of measuring how well we're doing. Yeah. You know, we, we have to rethink all of those things in the light of what we now know. And that's what the science is telling us, you know, that we can't just keep going, taking and taking and taking. I mean, I think it's, it. I mean, I think one of the things that, that makes this such a, it's such an unbelievably complicated it's it's the ultimate problem right absolutely everything seems to be connected to everything else Mm -hmm. and everybody's looking for kind of easy solutions and there are no easy solutions and i think as ruth says it sort of involves a, a a real sort of paradigm shift in thinking but i mean even doing that i think expecting everybody to just write this is the way it's going to be that's not how people are wired up so i to be honest i think it's 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 more about having a positive conversation instead of the sort of, uh, I don't know about you, you both, but sometimes it can be, you can feel a bit overwhelmed when you hear the, the climate situation. I think if we, if there was a sense of we were doing the right thing, that there was a sense of, we'll say, personal empowerment, a sort of a, almost a sense of pride in that this is something that this small little country can do. Well, hearing good news always helps. But I think you want to feel something that you feel you want to get a you want to get a bit of a buzz off. Do you know that sort of way? Yeah. Instead of that feeling that uh, oh my god, you know, hopelessness is what people don't want to hear. When you hear hopelessness, you give up. But when like, I love like th- this is what excited me about your project, Aaron. Is mm-hmm. I love seeing scientists tackling climate change and going, okay, we're not giving up. We're coming up with new solutions. Yeah. And Ruth. Uh, what was it about Aaron's project and, and his NUIG team? What was it about that that made you lads so um, happy with it? What did you choose it? Well, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I mean, I think the scale of the ambition was probably what excited us the most when we saw it. Um, because, you know, this wasn't something that was just about fixing something local. It was about this ambition to say we can take an Irish solution that might actually help us on a global level 
to, to tackle climate change. Because actually, as Aaron said, if we can see what's happening, if we can see the difference that, you know, putting in an irrigation system or some kind of aid intervention is having, that'll help us to make better decisions in terms of the right outcome that we want. So, you know, for me, a lot of science is about, you know, how do we get better information so we can make better decisions? Um, so that really excited us. And I think the other thing that really excited us, and I would say our international very, very tough review panels that, that put them through their paces, was the team. Because, mm-hmm. you know, people can sort of almost think scientists are automatons sometimes, you know, they're just getting on with going through the logical steps. But I think, I mean, it's easy to pick up when you're talking to Aaron how passionate he is about this area. And, you know, the same is true of the rest of the people on the team with him. And, you know, I, I think, you know, a small group of dedicated people who really believe in something and want to make a difference is where change comes from. And so I think we were excited about them as a group and we felt, look, we, we think they're going to do this. Let's just take a tiny little break right now so we can do the ocarina pause. I don't have the ocarina this week. Instead, I have a shaker, which is a lovely relaxing instrument. So we'll do the shaker pause. And while I'm doing this, you might hear a little advert. I don't know what it's going to be. Algorithmically generated to target you based on your searches. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That was the shaker pause right there. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. This podcast is my full time job. This is how I earn a living. If you're listening to this podcast and you enjoy it and it brings you some solace or entertainment or escapism or whatever, just please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. I love doing the work for this podcast. It's immensely rewarding. I adore this job. But the amount of the amount of work and writing that goes into each podcast is only possible when it is my full-time job. So if you ever think to yourself, fuck it, I like this podcast. If I met Blind Boy in real life, I'd buy him a cup of coffee or I'd buy him a pint. Well, you can. That's all I'm looking for. The price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month and then you get four podcasts. If you can't afford that, if you don't have a job, just don't have the money right now, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. And the people who can afford it are paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast 
I earn a living. What more could you want? Also, because this podcast is uh, listener funded, it means that I'm fully independent. I have full editorial control and creative control over the podcast. No advertiser can influence the content of this podcast. No advertiser can suggest or tell me what to create. I can tell advertisers to fuck off if I don't want them on the podcast. This is all possible because of the Patreon page. And this is what makes this is what makes it possible for me to consistently deliver to a standard and quality that I'm comfortable with and to put out the podcast that I want to put out and that you enjoy. So thank you to all my patrons. Basically, you, you give me a, a, a sense of financial certainty and a sense of safety that allows me the space to fail. It allows me to be able to to get an office for myself to work more efficiently because I know where my money is coming from and I can rely upon it. So thank you so much to all my patrons. Don't just support my independent podcast. Support any other independent podcast that you're enjoying. Okay? The podcast space is being overtaken at the moment by big corporate podcasts and corporate investments. So small independent podcasts always need support. And it doesn't just have to be financial support. Like the podcast. Share the podcast. Recommend it to a friend. Review the podcast on podcast apps. All that stuff makes a massive difference. Follow me on Instagram, Blind by Boat Club. And catch me on Twitch Thursday nights at 8.30, where I'm doing a never-ending live video game musical. Now, back to my chat with the scientists. Another thing, too, is the role of... Because of, we, were, we were comparing science to art recently, or, or earlier on in the conversation. And the role of creativity in science. Like, one thing for me... I was always very creative in school in that I was very good at lateral thinking, very very good at coming up with solutions. However, I was not academically strong. So I feel that I would have actually, I'd, I'd have enjoyed doing a science subject in school. I'd have loved to have done it. I reckon I'd have been good at it because of my ability to think laterally. But then my capacity to, like I'm barely able to count. Like I'm, I'm severely bad with mathematics. And this kept me from... Um, I wouldn't have gotten into any science course, you know, I had to pursue art. And is this something that science is, is interested in, Ruth? I mean, taking, like when I used to, I used to read about Einstein when I was younger. I hadn't a clue about any of the data that Einstein w- was going on about or any of the numbers. But I used to love thinking about the theory of relativity. Mm-hmm. I used to love thinking about time not being this fixed thing, about it being something that's flexible and bendable. I used to be able to visualise that and it would give me the same feeling I'd get if I was admiring a wonderful piece of art or if I was listening to a song that's impacting me emotionally. And I used to adore that about science, but then I felt myself, I didn't have access to those things because I wasn't academically sound. All right, well, I just want to jump in and say you sound, <laughs> on, like, yeah. you sound like a scientist to me. Well, I was going to say, what, yeah. What, what you, yeah, what you've just described there is exactly the the rush of imagination and the buzz. We'll flow, say. I call it. What? I call it flow. That's yeah, what well, this is it. it. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard for me to sort of describe, but I mean, I can totally relate to what you were saying there. Um, and you know what? All I'll say, speaking from my perspective as an astronomer in a maths department is that uh, it takes all sorts and you know I, I wouldn't have regarded myself as the absolute top of the class either 
but I think there was a certain element of sheer bloody mindedness in my own case and uh, that But you must be handy at maths. You're handy at maths. I, I, uh, <laughs> I can't do long division. Well, I'm having problems helping my 14-year-old daughter with their maths homework. Go so. way out of it. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. Um, but listen, the bottom oh line is when God. I need to know stuff, I need to know stuff. I'm probably not doing my career any favours here. But the bottom line is that when I need to know stuff, I know I need to, I need to know what I need to know. And yeah. the, the thing that motivates me is the big picture and all of the things that you articulated there, all of the things that you articulated there. And, and furthermore, based on my interactions and I'm talking to people, whether about this project or other projects, everybody gets it. So I think mm-hmm. everybody has that innate ability to think like a scientist, to have that creativity. The, as the, I don't think the public at large, when the word scientist comes into their head, they think of a scientist as someone who, who thinks creatively or thinks like an artist. We tend to think of scientists the way we think about accountants. Yeah. These are data-driven, <laughs> cold, logical people, oh and God. they're not at all. Uh, if you know, we, we artists then are the the free, creative thinkers. And this is what I'm saying. What I when the when Einstein's work used to impact me as a teenager, it, it, I was going, "This is this is art. This the scale of imagination to think about time." There was the the thought experiment. Where, he, where Einstein was imagining time as like a, a pool table, like like a sheet of a bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's saying, that's space and time. And then if you get like a basketball and you put it in the middle, that's the sun. But when the sun creates a depression, or, or when the basketball creates a depression in, in the bed sheet, that's the sun pulling on gravity and time yeah. at the same time. And I used to get so excited by that. And I used to say, that's art. Yeah, but that's art there. As Aaron said, like, I think this is a relatively new way of thinking, because exactly if you think about Leonardo da Vinci, I mean, there was no division between his creative arts and his science. And, you know, in a way, it's one of the things that we have to get away from, because as Aaron said, it takes all types. And in science particularly, and it's something I'm really, really passionate about, we are not going to come up with all the answers and the solutions if we only have one way of thinking in the room. And I think it's a real question. I mean, who understands relativity better? You know, you with your ability to actually visualise what's going on with that space-time continuum in your mind or someone who can add the numbers on the page. And I think that's an open question. Now, if you question. showed me the numbers, I'd run out of the room. Exactly. But but still, I, I think it's just a different perspective. And and again, it was kind of interesting, the whole with COVID and the leaving cert and, and this idea that we had to get away from, you know, just written exams, that we could look at students and learning in a different way and say, well, look, people are different and they learn in different ways. And look, if we use one method of assessment we're only going to kind of get one thing and we're probably going to limit an awful lot of people so like we we just have to to get away from this idea that there's one type of person that does anything and particularly in science because I mean if you think about the different ways that science impacts on us all I mean my my favorite example of this is kind of digital technologies and the internet and all Mm -hmm. of the born online companies so it was 1994 when commercial traffic was allowed on the web And Mm -hmm. 
Obviously, the first, I don't know, some people remember like Alta Vista, that was the first search engines. Yeah. And then there was probably the early, the precursors of things like Facebook, you know, the early social yeah. media stuff. And really, when that technology started and people started sharing stuff online, one of the big controversies at the time, and people might remember, was around Napster, which was an app that yeah. allowed people to share mm-hmm. music for free. Yeah. And that's what mm-hmm. people were getting really upset about. They were like, geez, this is terrible. You know, musicians aren't getting paid and people are just sharing mm-hmm. stuff for free. But but at the time, and I think it was Bill Gates he was interviewed, someone asked him about, well, okay, now we were all connected and we can just share stuff with no filter. What if people start putting stuff on the internet that's not true? And he said, yeah. he said, why would anyone do that? We, sh- we shouldn't worry about that at all. And interestingly then, it was David Bowie, kind of one of the people, you know, clearly yeah. a, a creative force. And David Bowie looked at the internet and I think he probably had a way of visualizing things like you because that's how he described them. He saw the internet almost like a a sort of beast um, and it had all this power and potential, but it had this potential to be a dark side. And I think one of the thought experiments that I do in my own head is imagine we went back to like the the, the late 90s and we had a discussion about the potential of that technology all of us, not just, you know, the boffins in the room, but people like David Bowie, people like you. I mean, because I think, you know, if those broader voices had been in the room, I think we would have we would have thought about some of the downsides quicker. And maybe we could have avoided the situation we find ourselves in now where like the genie is out of the box, you know, regulating, you know, online misinformation, disinformation is impossible. It's incredibly damaging in cases. But I think, you know, we need to learn the lessons from that. And that means we need more people in the room when we're talking about where technology and science are going. And one little thing. So just on the subject of that, about let's just call it democratizing science, okay, making it something that because, again, this is something as well in the art world. Like I I did my master's degree a couple of years ago in literally in democratizing art. Yeah. Like galleries, you think of the average art gallery, sometimes that can be a very intimidating space, especially something like a modern art gallery. And people Mm. can walk in there and they will treat it as if it's a church. They're very solemn, they're very quiet, and they are terrified that someone might someone might think that they don't know what the art on the wall means. And when that happens, you've got a problem. That means art has become a little bit elitist and a bit gatekeeping. And you kind of go, well, I don't know what that art is because I don't have a qualification in it. And I don't like that because I'm an artist. I believe art is for absolutely everybody. And science, I think, has gotten to a point where when when you have, you know, you've got people who are anti-vax, you've got people who are climate change deniers, people who, even when presented with science, don't trust it anyway, right? They believe that scientists are, are lying. That's a problem that obviously through democratizing needs to be solved, but... If you think back to the Enlightenment, when, like, is it fair to say the Enlightenment is where we'd say where, where modern science as we know it today came kind of mainstream? Is that a fair enough yeah, thing I to say? Yeah, I think so. 17th so, century? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, in the Enlightenment, you look at the earlier, earliest figures of it, they were just really, really rich people. They were really, yeah. really rich, posh people who had creative, inquisitive minds and they didn't have laboratories. They had living rooms and you might, it would have been perfectly OK for somebody to be both a painter and also to be interested in, in the, the, something like optics, you know. And what, what I'm trying to get at is when did it start? When did the elitism start? One thing I was looking at recently in a podcast I was doing 
I was looking at the Vic- there was a Victorian frenzy around ferns. You know those yeah. plants, mm-hmm. ferns. Mm-hmm. So what happened was around 1830, when uh, that would have been the, the end of the Industrial Revolution, and you had an emerging middle class. So you had people in like London and Birmingham, and they're living in townhouses. And one thing they found was the smog in London was so thick that people couldn't grow houseplants. It was so bad they couldn't grow houseplants. So one person, can't remember his name, he basically invented the terrarium. He was like, if I grow ferns in a glass jar, the smog doesn't impact their ability to grow. And now I've got these lovely, this lovely terrarium, like a mini jungle in a tiny little greenhouse in my living room. And it created this frenzy of fern collecting. But the first proponents of it were women. It was a hugely women who at the time would have had to have been chaperoned if they were in public because of the misogyny that was present in Victorian society. All of a sudden, they were permitted to go off into the woods and collect ferns and give ferns names and all of these things. And it became associated with women, the collection of ferns. And then what happened around 1850 is some male scientists didn't like this and they created the field of botany almost as a way to exclude women. And it became like, oh, what you're doing up in the mountains with your ferns and all the girls, that's just stupid (laughs) shit. We've got science now and we have a name for it and you're not allowed in. And I think that's a really sad thing. Do you get what I'm saying? What I'm trying to get at, when did this start? When did it start whereby science got into these rigid fields where all of a sudden certain people felt excluded from it or even scared to talk about it. Well, can maybe I'll just butt in here maybe. I, I don't know when exactly it happened, but I, I don't like it. I, I'm by definition an interdisciplinary scientist. I have a degree in physics originally. I mm-hmm. do astronomy. I've been a professor of genetics in the United States. I'm now working in climate change. Uh, and you, uh, biology, essentially. I mean, you're looking at plants. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I've done work on I've done work on and plant organisms and studying the effects in them and all the rest of it. The thing is, though, I don't know whether we're dealing with. I don't know if it's a monkey thing. What I mean by that is, I don't know if it's a socio-tribal thing. I don't know if we're talking about very fundamental things in in human nature that mm-hmm. people want to form tribes and feel some kind of affiliation with them. I certainly speaking for myself. Uh, you know, when I would, for example, present to another group of, we'll say, experts on something that uh, would be, you know, totally legitimate piece of work and all the rest of it, there might be a certain sense of, well, where, who ordered him? Where did he come from? That's what I'm thinking. You know, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing, right? Finally, we have an all-encompassing global problem that there is oh. no one expert or group of experts um, there that can solve it okay there is no avengers masters of the universe scientists type to solve this problem it requires all types of scientists and you know what it also requires all types of people because you know we are embedded in this human experiment for want of a better word that's kind of career and a little bit out of control and i think as, as ruth has said it really involves not only people educating themselves and understanding what's going on. But also I think it involves the scientists having to talk to each other. And, you know, as as Ruth kind of very kindly articulated, we have that in our project. You've got myself, you've got a plant geneticist, you have a geographer, you have an economist, and you have, an, you've a computer scientist. That's the core team. Uh, you know, I mean, it sounds like the start of a bad joke or something, but... There is no way you could have imagined a situation where those people would come together. 
But how and do you at collaborate the, at the there? risk at the risk at the risk of uh, sounding like I'm sucking up to my sponsors? It took a lot of, I think, guts and vision for SFI to put together this challenge based program. Okay, because it's a very different way of doing business, but it brings people out of the woods. It brings people with that kind of interdisciplinary flair. It brings them together and gets them to coalesce around really important projects, the kind of thing that really motivates you to do things properly as a scientist. And I think that's kind of the key is you can't change people's attitude, but by God, you can steer them. You know, and I think this this kind of hopefully this kind of positive response to COP26 and this positive response to the this issue of climate change is something that people can feel empowered with and get behind rather than, as I said to you before, this sense of hopelessness. And and as you've incredibly articulated so well, this this idea of elitists and special groups. And mm-hmm. I have an idea. Ruth, do you want to comment on the, the, the activities that you and your colleagues have been doing around the country. And, kind and of. also the disciplinary, interdisciplinary stuff, Ruth, I find that yeah. very fascinating. Well, you know, it's actually been really just listening to here and Aaron, it's funny because we, we talk about the challenge programme as being interdisciplinary or, you know, we talk about transdisciplinary research where you've, you know, crossed different disciplines. And in many ways, we really, I think Linda Doyle actually said this the other day, you know, she was being interviewed at uh, the Provost of Trinity, the, the first woman who was elected as the Provost of Trinity. And she said, look, wouldn't it be great when we get to the point where we don't need to, to say that, you know, it's just yeah. perfectly ordinary. And I think it's a bit like that in science. We, we've sort of started out with this idea that the sciences and the arts and in fact, all the different kinds of sciences were just all about pushing the boundaries of knowledge and curiosity. And then, as you say, kind of probably from the Victorian times, they sort of went into these silos and disciplines and then there mm-hmm. were special societies for each disciplines. And, and as you said, Aaron, it probably got a bit tribal then and it was just human mm-hmm. nature took over. But but we probably, you know, it's that, you know, how, how do we how do we keep the deep expertise, but just move away? So so in a way, transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary research, we shouldn't even have to mention it. It's about mm-hmm. what are you trying to discover? What are you trying to work on? And it is it is about that pushing the boundaries of knowledge so you know that that to me is is really really what it's all about and um, so here's a little question Ruth right mm. so recently so I was called into the, the the art college here in Limerick to give a talk right and they specifically called me in so that I would speak to students in multiple disciplines so that means film sculpture painting print graphic design all these separate disciplines just like you'd have in science and they brought me in to because because I incorporate um I'm interdisciplinary with my art practice as well. I'm a musician and a writer and a video maker, loads of different things. And they said to me, if you are to get someone who's a printer and someone who's a painter and someone who's a dancer and someone who's a sculptor all to work together and speak in the same language, what do you do? And what I said to him was, it doesn't matter what your discipline is as an artist. At the end of the day, creative lateral thinking is the commonality between all disciplines. You're at, you're still just a child with Lego at play. <laughs> that's what that's what art is. When you're a child and you're playing with Lego, which means that you're not self-critical, you're not even thinking about a finished piece. You're simply involved in the process. As as adults, artists, that's the feeling that we're chasing. That's the dragon we're chasing to be two years of age playing with Lego. So all artistic disciplines have that in common. What is it with science? Why? If a, an astronomer is to sit down and to have a chat with a, a botanist or a biologist, 
like where's what's the common thing there that you can speak the same language on? Yeah, well, I think there is that scientific method, and that's what we all got trained in as scientists, which was about, you know, often having a hypothesis or an idea, and then saying, well, okay, if I want to know whether that's true or not, I have to go out and gather evidence, and then you need to be, you know, what is the kind of evidence I need to gather, um, and then you need to analyze that information and say, well, has this proven my hypothesis or not? So, you know, there is that kind of common scientific method which I think all scientists can can work on together but kind of almost coming back to to the creative piece I I think a lot of it is about what is the question you're actually trying to answer and I think that's particularly because in in many ways you know designing an experiment to do something you know that that's that that's sort of part of the scientific training it's what you can do but I think it's those key inventive steps those kind of eureka moments um, that are kind of the magic in science and, mm-hmm. and and actually so so a lot of those come from the creative side of, of scientists and you know it's one of the things that we're doing at the moment we're facilitating a campaign called creating our future and that campaign is about talking to many, many people about their ideas for science. So, you know, again, it's something that struck me. And and again, Aaron, I don't know what what you think about this. A lot of scientists sort of pick their discipline quite early on. You know, they do their PhD maybe in their early 20s and then they might go on and they kind of tend to stay in roughly the same area because then they become a deep specialist in that area. So it's quite hard to move. So so someone like Mm -hmm. Aaron, who's moved from sort of astronomy, physics, maths, genetics, that's quite, you're quite unusual, I I think, Aaron. say that again. (laughs) What I'd like to ask there, Aaron. That's what my colleagues tell me. On a personal level, then, Aaron, right? Do, do mm-hmm. you have you come up against uh, what we call gatekeeping? Like, does that make your job difficult for you? Ah, you look, look, I'll give you an example. When I was working in the states, um, I was working in a medical school in New York, and I, 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 I can do this thing called genomics, right? So I can, mm-hmm. I can work on the computational analysis of DNA information. It's just a signal processing problem from from a kind of a physics perspective, but it's incredibly interesting. But anyway. I remember why I would write grants. Um, mm-hmm. It was a big thing over there. And so you'd write a, a project proposal to get funding. And if I was part of a project proposal with another colleague, uh, the grant review would say, uh, and the genomics aspect as embodied by Dr. Golden is extremely solid and has a great chance of success and all the rest of it. But when I would put in a, gr- a project proposal, I'm not moaning here. I just want to give this, this no, context. This is, this when, is I, when I put in a proposal, I'd come, it would come back with... Uh, the candidate does not have the qualified background or experience. Ah. So, I mean, to me, like, you know, you use the word gatekeeping. I, I think to some extent, you know, people work within these boundaries, we'll say. And I think, you know, they assess within disciplines, they assess themselves by these metrics, we'll say. And yeah. I think sometimes when people move across boundaries, that can sort of conflict with the way that people are comfortable with assessing things. I think Ruth used the phrase of that deep expertise thing. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a great thing to have, but I think to some extent uh, it, it sort of, uh, it limits creativity, I'd say. So uh, there was got, a, a guy, there's a fellow, a fellow called Jared, um, he wrote this, he wrote these, he wrote these. Jared uh, Diamond, guns. is this? Jared Diamond. Yeah, Jared, Jared Diamond. Diamond. Guns, Jared yeah. Steel. Hmm. Yeah, he, he was, he once, wrote, I read a really interesting um, interview with him where basically he was, he was an interdisciplinary scientist. I think he was like formerly a physiologist or something like this, but actually he was interested in ornithology or something. Um, but in order for him to 
get a full-time permanent job and where he was in the States, he was advised, you absolutely can't talk about your interdisciplinary interests because people won't take you seriously. I think yeah. that's... that's would be a jack of all one. trades and a master of none. Correct. That's exactly yeah. it. That's exactly it. Um, so, Which used to be called a polymath. Well, I, I look, at some people, just, I, as I say, some people just think I'm a bit erratic, but <laughs> I have lots of interests and... I try to express my scientific interests in the best way that I can. I don't think we have the same latitude, we'll say, as you're fortunate to have. But when you can express it, uh, like, for example, as we're doing now with this particular this fantastic project that SFI funded for us, I think it's it's a phenomenal opportunity. You know, it's not, it's not something you pass yeah. up on. and You seize it with both hands. But, so I'm guessing there, Ruth, right? Uh, SFI don't seem to give a shit about these boundaries. Well, As in, like, what Aaron was describing there was, you know, and it, it again, it's similar in the arts. You have certain funds that you can apply to, but these funds, the boundaries of them can be quite strict. So this is a fund for writers. So if you come at this as a painter who wants to have a crack at writing, then your project, you're not getting funded. But by the sounds of SFI, you looked at Aaron's project and it's all these different disciplines working together and he says, yeah, we're interested in that. We don't care about those boundaries. <laughs> well, Aaron would probably say we have plenty of boundaries, but we are trying to do better. I mean, look, as a public funder, you're always pushed to put more boundaries in place. And I think one of the things that our boss says, Mark Ferguson, who's the director general, you know, have a few important rules, but not lots of silly rules. And I think that kind of tries to guide us where where you need to have boundaries, we have them, but but have as few as possible. Uh, and I think it's getting better. I mean, Aaron's right. The way science used to be looked at by you know, when, when, when if you wrote a grant and it went to other scientists to look at, they'd sort of count, well, you've only published X amount of papers in that area. So, you know, you don't have the background. And we've actually totally flipped the way we get people to tell us what they've done as a scientist. So we, we ask them, rather than submitting a CV with everything they've done now, we say to them, tell us what you've done. Just tell us. Why is it important? And what have you done about it? <laughs> um, and I think that allows a lot more flexibility in how people can respond so that someone who is a polymath or who has bright ideas can actually have a framework to, to come in and get funding from us. So that's what we want. What we want is excellent, exciting projects that are going to make a difference. And the other thing then, Ruth, is so SFI's money comes from the government. Yeah. So I'm guessing then the importance of something like Science Week is for like government money is the people's money. So yeah. it's so that the average person on the street understands this is a valuable thing for your tax money to be going towards. This is why this is important. So Science Week is a way to communicate that to everybody. Exactly. And I mean, again, I mean, it's something I feel so strongly about that people have a bit like you talked about the demo democratization of art. They actually yeah. have a right to have their voice heard in where new knowledge is going and is taking us because, you know, in some ways, if you think about science and research, it's potential because it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, what questions we choose to look at and who we get to look at them, those things actually matter because we mm -hmm. can change the course of, of, of the way things go. And that's why... Science Week for us. And again, Science Week used to be a kind of not really a rarefied event, but it really you would never have even known it was happening. I mean, it was yeah. if, if you had kids in school, they might have done an activity for Science Week or there might have been something in a university. But when I took over Science Week about 
God, seven or eight years ago now, working with, you know, great colleagues, we just said, we have to do this differently. Like the people who don't feel that they have access to science, exactly like they may feel uncomfortable walking into a quiet gallery, they probably are daunted by the gates of a yeah. university. So, so we just said, we're not, do, we're not doing that. So we actually thought, right, we're going out to the local breastfeeding group and we're having an event yeah. there. We're going to a deprived area where, you know, there are people who don't feel like they have a voice and access. And that's where the event is going to happen. Uh, you know, we mm-hmm. moved to do much more on broadcast, but not a broadcast which said, here's a science show. A broadcast yeah. which was about something else, but, you know, had that information embedded in it so that it would allow people who maybe felt science wasn't for them to, to actually get access. Because, you know, really... Gorilla science. It gorilla is kind science of gorilla science. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but again, not even... I mean, education is part of it, but I, I don't want it to sound like it's kind of us, the scientists, telling people. Because I think there's just as That's much... That's the problem. Yeah. That right there is the problem. Yeah. That's the, there's the person in the white coat with all the information. Exactly. And I need to it's very quiet kind of and listen. didactic, isn't it? And like, I'm going to yes. tell you. And I think, you know, what we need to accept, and I think, you know, Aaron's project kind of exemplifies it, that there's other knowledge, uh, you know, that is also valuable. And some of that is context. Some of it is, you know, creative so, so there's all sorts of different knowledge and you know we're actually working with Irish Aid now and we're, we're funding another sort of similar program like Aaron was funded under but we're you know those projects actually bring in partners in you know the global south so as mm-hmm. you know it's almost like a, another layer of information to add in there's actually someone in Vietnam or, or in you know one of these countries working on the project with the scientists here so I just think we have to get out of that mindset of one-way traffic I get you. And one thing too there, I was really disappointed recently to hear that the, the science gallery up in Trinity is closing because yeah. I always, I used to be in Dublin, I'd call in there all the time yeah, and I'd see kids in there and I've done gigs in the science gallery over the years. Everyone in there was so sound. It was one of these things as well, especially during the recession. It was just lovely to, to have this little beacon. Because it felt very Celtic Tigerish, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Which was great because I'm like, wow, even during the recession, this thing is open. I'm heartbroken that that's closing. How do you feel about that? Because that was the that was like the gates of Trinity sometimes can feel intimidating. But it's like, here's the thing outside the gates. Yeah. It yeah. was wonderful. Well, I was really glad. To, I saw again, to, to harken back to Linda, that she she sort of has said they're they're looking at the decision. So, you know, it would be OK, good. It would be great. I think a lot of people would be very happy. And if, if the science gallery was able to stay open. And, and I think the other side of it is, you know, we don't have a science museum in Ireland. I mean, we're one of the very few countries yeah. that doesn't have sort of a proper science museum. So I think, you know, we, we need lots more of this kind of access not less and you know what about science museums and this is what I love about science museums because I'll always go to them if I'm in New York or London they actually work because I'm talking about the democratization of art science museums work as like a first step to getting people into going into an art gallery because one thing science museums what they really have nailed is that generally science museums don't feel exclusive Mm -hmm. they're they're noisy they're noisy and you will have that's a good sign it's of course it's a good sign you get to touch things I was in a place I think it was called the Imaginarium in San Francisco and it was just this huge science gallery and it's completely participatory yeah 
if you want to get your hands dirty, if you want to get an electric shock, if you want to do all these things, you can do them. And it brings all the senses into the learning. So you're smelling, you're tasting, you're seeing, you're getting surprised. And then you can choose to look at the, you can read about it then as well. But what I loved about it was the, the holistic way that you're educated in a science museum or in a science gallery. And art doesn't have that. Art is scared of that because once you start doing that with art, it's like, oh, now it's not serious anymore. Do you know what I mean? And I always feel that science museums are actually a great way to get people into art galleries or art museums or museums in general, which are a little bit stuffier. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's something there, de- definitely. And have people put in a proposal for uh, a science? Like, what would we... Because I'm trying to think of, like, famous scientists. I, I love... Here's what I... When, I, when I'm trying to find out famous scientists in Ireland, I always try and find the story behind it. Because in my podcast, what I do is... If I'm trying to explain something to someone, I always feel that storytelling is the best way to do it because Mm -hmm. we love hearing stories. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. for me, there's a scientist from Limerick in like the 1700s called Sylvester O'Halloran, right? And Sylvester O'Halloran was a surgeon, but he's seen as one of the most important surgeons in the world because of his advancements in brain surgery. But the reason Sylvester O'Halloran was such a brilliant brain surgeon is because of the amount of faction fighting that was going on in Munster at the time. So faction fighting was such a huge problem that he was seeing a level of head injuries that nobody else was seeing. And this then is what allowed him the opportunity to advance the science of brain surgery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Those strange connections. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And you hear a story like that and you'll remember it. And yeah, you'll yeah, understand. That's yeah. yeah, true. Yeah. yeah, it goes in. It goes in. It registers. Yeah, yeah I agree. Ruth, was, was the fact that uh, Aaron's project c- contained artificial intelligence, was that something that you were excited about? AI is one of these things that, I mean, I, all I know, I don't know much about AI, but I know that people who are in the know say that it's going to cause the, the third industrial revolution, that when AI kicks off, it will be like the last industrial revolution. I can't fathom that. I don't know enough about it to know what that is. I just have to trust. I mean, I think AI, it's still in its in its early days. and But yes, it was. I mean, the competition that Aaron entered, we wanted to look for AI solutions. We wanted to yeah. look at that deployment of that technology. But but look, I mean, I think a lot of people would say it is still in its infancy. And, and it's a bit like it's dependent on the data that we have to train the AI to, to do things for us. And, and one of the things, you know, we're, we're thinking about now is quantum computing and the next kind of generation yeah. of computers that are going to be so incredibly powerful. And are they going to be able to be trained as machines that use AI to take on board vast amounts of data and actually start to do the analysis themselves? But I think the question is, when will they be able to come up with the questions themselves? And that is still, yeah. I think, very, very far away. So, yeah, AI as a tool has so much potential, but it is about how we train the AI. And actually, there, there was some really interesting work that was done. It actually, I think it was in, in Limerick, um, but it was it was looking at data sets around facial recognition software. And this, yeah. this facial recognition software was using AI, but the data set that it had been trained on 
actually was full of biases. So in fact, there was tags yes. on some of the data sets that were derogatory around people of color, their faces. Mm-hmm. But that was then brought into the AI. So, I mean, that was a technology that actually was that that, that data set was closed, that that technology was closed after that work that was done in Ireland. So, I mean, AI has huge potential, but again, it's potential that we have to talk about and it's potential that we have to decide how do we want to deploy it. Mm-hmm. And I are you agree. excited about AI? Like, are you, are you excited about that for the future? I think, for me, the idea that AI, I mean, might be able to look back at that expanse of human knowledge and, and maybe help us, you know, come up with new treatments for diseases, you know, that might mm-hmm. actually help us do better with, you know, dealing with climate change. I am excited about that. And I think it's really good that we're having these conversations so we can get all the positive potential out of it and try and mitigate maybe some of the downsides. So one question I have for the both of you is regarding the last two years of the pandemic, right? I don't think I've, I've in my lifetime, I've never seen such a distrust, an open distrust of science. And it's really... It's disappointing because what I hate hearing from scientists is what I hate hearing a scientist say so much of my energy is not taken up uh, proceeding in science. It's taken up by having to legitimize and explain my work to a person who doesn't believe it. I'm talking about uh, vaccines. I'm talking about climate change as well. Like vaccine denial is a huge thing. Climate change denial is massive. And now resources have to be put in to, ex- to, to, to try and just say to someone, it's, it's like the, the, the flat earth. It's like having to still explain that the earth is round to a person who is just, no, 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 it's flat and fuck you. And then the energy that has to be wasted for something we already know. How do you feel about what's happened to the public perception and distrust of science over the past two years? Mm. I mean, it's funny. I probably have a slightly different perspective because I, I think you're, you're right about those issues. You, you're not on Facebook. Obviously. <laughs> yeah, as little as possible. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, well I, I guess, you know, I, I think the last two years have been a really amazing window into people watching what's how science works because I don't know there's that like as it's well, been yeah. it's been really interesting because you hear people phoning in to radio shows and they're talking about I mean th- they're using the language that we as kind of academic researchers use like a preprint a publication that's almost ready to go but it's not quite ready and they'll be saying I saw the, a, an article about a preprint and it says that this drug might be useful against COVID and then you know maybe two weeks later there might be another bit of information. Oh, we think differently now. So the public had to kind of go on that journey with scientists of literally looking into a big black void where we knew almost nothing. And then, you know, gradually stepping forward and knowing more and turning on the lights as we sort of navigated the maze. You know, we thought it was a contact borne virus. You know, now we know it's an airborne virus. Yeah. So they kind of had to go down the blind alleyways. Yeah, with the washing the, the hands at the yeah, start. Yeah, all of that. And, and, you know, the masks. I mean, remember, we weren't going to wear masks. But, but so, so in a yeah. way the public kind of had to go down those alleys with the scientists and realize that, you know, it's not always right first time. You have to be, in, you keep looking for evidence, you keep learning, and then you retreat back and you go on down the road, turning on the lights as you go. And so for me, actually, I thought that was a really good thing um, that that whole dialogue kind of happened in public view 
almost with the blind alleyways and all, rather than just scientists been off working away on something for years and years behind closed doors and then only coming out with the big reveal when they were very certain about things. But here's the thing then, Ruth, right? So what you're talking about there is that science is fallible. Science makes mistakes and tries to correct and tries to learn at all times. But then some people felt betrayed by that because they're like, hold on a minute. Last month you said this and now you say this. Now it's completely different. You're wrong. And I think these people, these are the ones who had been kind of, I don't want to say brainwashed. These are the ones who were conditioned to believe that scientists, they're experts and they're right all the time. So if they're wrong once, then you can't trust them. Yeah, and I think exactly that. It's kind of away from that elite dialogue. You know, science is a method. It is self-correcting and that's the beauty of it because once you put something out there, everyone gets to kick the tires. And as Aaron will know, as a very active scientist, they're all too happy to go and kick the tires and make sure that you're you're doing things right. So it is a self-correcting system, but you are still putting your best foot forward and, and, and you're not necessarily always on the right path. You know, you do go explore alleyways that turn out to be not the right way and you come back. So, so you're right. Yeah, we do need to get away from this idea. If a scientist said it, they are 100% sure about it and it's definitely right. And again, it kind of comes down to the communication because I think sometimes people find scientists frustrating to talk to because they'll mm-hmm. say, well, we're fairly certain about this. And then they'll be, well, is it or isn't it? And, you know, the answer is, we have a high, high degree of certainty that that's how it is. But we could be wrong. And you always have to be open to that potential on, on some things. But but having said that, you're right. And what, what's exploited is those areas of uncertainty. And, and as a yes. science community, we probably need to be a little bit better. So, I mean, vaccines in Ireland is, is a good one. I mean, we've we've actually ended up with a really high vaccination rate. It's pretty it's good. Pre- yeah, no, we're pretty it is good. good. And, and we know there are pockets of that disinformation about vaccines on places like Facebook. But if you look at the debate that happened around the scientists on sort of the mainstream airwaves, they did debate the type of vaccine, who should get it, when they should get it, all of those things. But there was no discussion about whether vaccines were a good thing or not, or whether we should roll up our sleeves and and get the jab in the arm. Like it was an overwhelming, get it, these are great. And I think that was really, really positive. I think that contributed to the high rates of vaccination that we have here. Um, One question I have, and I'm going to throw this one at you, Ruth, right? Um, So one concern that some people have around science is when research our scientific projects, right? When the investment money can come from private interests that have an agenda. So what I'm thinking about is fossil fuel. Like we we, we knew about climate change a long time ago mm-hmm. and the fossil fuel industry put a lot of money into making sure that the information didn't get out and to also funding, um, funding scientists to, to say, can you come up with some good data <laughs> here that makes petrol look class? Yeah. Tobacco similarly funding uh, medical projects to say can you make cigarettes look brilliant also where else did we see this pharma you know this is this is a big critique that some people have of big pharma that you know you can have mental health stuff funded by a company who essentially are like we've got a new drug here and can you like I was talking to uh, Dr. Pat, Pat Bracken who was the head of the psychiatrist's of Ireland and Pat Bracken is is someone who is a a psychiatrist but he's critical of psychiatry itself Mm. and he spoke about how a huge pharma company basically they couldn't sell their antidepressants in Japan because Japan didn't have 
enough words for sadness in their language. They had a more healthier way of looking at the human condition mm -hmm. in how they spoke about themselves. And the pharma company basically said, we can't sell these fucking pills <laughs> in Japan. This is a problem. <laughs> so they, they, they had a look at it and they introduced marketing to introduce new languages. And then all of a sudden, these antidepressants started to sell very well in Japan. Okay. And this was Pat Bracken, who's the head of the psychiatry in Ireland, telling me this. So he's he's a, a reliable source. And when I heard that, that broke my heart, yeah. you know. Well, I think, look, I mean, the private sector is just, as it says on the tin, it's private. And, you know, they do, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean I'm mean, i sure that there's good and bad in the private sector like there is in lots of other areas of life. But, I mean, I think for me, what we have to do, and again, it's the reason kind of I do what I do is we have to have scientists and researchers working for us. <laughs> for you and me. So that's why yeah. we as taxpayers invest in people like Aaron who work in a public institution where he has to tell us yeah. what he's doing and he can't, mm -hmm. he has to actually publish exactly what he's doing and he can't, exactly. you know, hide his methods or pretend, oh, I, I, I had that control group and actually I'm just going to leave them out because it doesn't mm -hmm. give me the results I want. Yeah. And actually a, lo a lot of funders are doing that now. They're saying, even before you start, you have to tell us exactly what you're going to do and what your experiment is going to look like. So you can't just cherry pick later and leave out the bit that you didn't like. So, like, I think there's probably more work to do at a national level and, and, and an international level. We have to get even better at that transparency piece. But but I mean, it, so transparency it is, is key and there. it was one of the key things. Actually, a lot of the the digital research and and the the AI research. I mean, we all know Watson, you know, and IBM, and a lot of that. Google is doing huge amounts in quantum, and, and that's all great. And I'm sure they will make huge strides. But it's a bit scary. It, it can it's a bit be scary because it's like do Google give a well, shit about us that type but the, of thing the you know? I think that what can you do can you get the benefit of the fact that the private sector are going to put huge muscle and energy into progressing technology so there could be good things out of that they will actually push the boundaries maybe in some areas fast but what you need is a, a control <laughs> you need a break and you need a check so you need publicly funded scientists who are deep experts in the areas who can look at what's going on in private industry and ask questions about it, who can inform regulation if we need regulation. But but I mean, the worst case scenario for me would be governments and, you know, people even listen to this podcast going, ah, yeah, look, research is interesting, but it's not that important. And you know what? Like the companies yeah. will get on with it and it'll be fine. But for me, it won't be fine because we need people who are just as good working for us um, because then we can get the benefits, hopefully, of some of the, the progress that will undoubtedly be driven by the private sector. But we can actually keep a set of boundaries around it because actually we've got our own team of researchers that are looking after our interests. And that is what they are doing. OK, I'm going to I'm going to wrap it up now. And what I want to ask is, is there anything you really wanted to get across today that we haven't covered, uh, in particular, you, Ruth, with SFI or anything? Like that? I guess I would just say to people, if you know, you found this conversation interesting or actually if there's areas of research that you you look out at the world, things that are important to you and you're saying, look, why is no one looking at that? I'm actually that's important to me and my life. You know, we were inviting people to go online to creatingourfuture.ie. We want to collect 10,000 ideas from everyone and everyone's idea is important. I mean, I think that's kind of been a theme that's come through today. You know, you might have a better idea about something than, than any of us here on the podcast. So mm -hmm. we'd love people to do that. And all of your ideas will be read. There will be a whole group of people looking at them. And we, we will be creating a book of inspiration for researchers. And we will also be using that to say to government, look, these are important things to people. 
wow, okay, so you're saying the public, for the public to engage and don't be thinking this is a silly idea no. whatever, just send it to you and that will be looked at and this then can in, uh, literally inform the research that happens so that civilians can have a sense of agency yeah, around this. exactly. Wow, that sounds class. Um, all right, so Dr. Ruth Freeman and Dr. Aaron Golden, thank you so much for this. That was an absolutely fantastic chat. Thank you so <laughs> thank much. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and best of luck. You too. Thank you. What a lovely, rewarding chat that was. Um, so if you're interested in Science Week, write sfi.ie, Science Foundation Ireland, and support the fantastic work that they're doing. It's a magnificent public service. So I'm going to sign off now, like I always do recently. I sign off. And if you want, I'm going to play one of the songs that I make on my live Twitch musical. I'll play this after the break. But if you're not interested in that, if you don't give a shit about music, if you don't give a shit about my art project, that's absolutely fine. No hassle. You can say goodbye now. And I bid you farewell. For everyone else who's interested, you can stick around after the break and I'll come back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So welcome back. This here is a little new segment that I've been doing recently. So over the pandemic, I started live streaming, right? Live streaming on a website called Twitch. And basically... What I do is I make up, I have musical instruments, musical recording equipment and on a live stream I make up songs on the spot basically but I do so to the events of a video game and the video game is Red Dead Redemption 2. It's like a digital recreation of Wild West America and it's this massive map that's open that I can just wander around. And I create songs live. I make them up on the spot to this digital environment. That's what I do. So each week I take one of the songs that I would have made on this live stream. There's an audience watching while it's happening. And sometimes this audience can make suggestions and stuff as well. Make suggestions for the lyrics. So it's participatory art. It's not necessarily about the finished piece. It's about the process of making the art. And it's been a really enjoyable thing I've been doing over the pandemic. I fucking love doing it. It's great crack. It's such a buzz to be making music. The thrill of it. The thrill of risking uh, failure publicly. The buzz of that helps me with my self-esteem, my confidence as a creative person. And it's just a really enjoyable project. So I'm going to play a little song for you now that I would have made on the stream. And this song is called get to the top of the mountain. So this song was written when I was wandering around Red Dead Redemption and I'd found a little hill that I was trying to climb. 
and for some reason I couldn't climb this hill in the game. It took ages to try and climb this hill and then I realised I'd actually reached the end of the digital map. There was no more map beyond it. And in that moment, my character in the game realised that their universe was a simulation. So when that happened, I'm like, yeah, we got to write a song about that. So that's what this is. This is a 100% improvised song that was made up, recorded, produced in the moment and then edited afterwards. This is called Top of the Mountain. I'll talk to you next week.